Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, this is John Donatich. I'm the director of Yale University Press, and I'm pleased today to welcome as our guest to the Yale blog, Mr. Tim Parks, who has written 14 novels, including Europa, Destiny, Sex is Forbidden, and Painting Death. Also, a number of non-fictional personal accounts of his life in Italy, Italian neighbors, and Italian education, and Italian ways on and off the rails from Milan to Palermo. He's written a very influential book on translating called Translating Style, which brings us closer to our point of topic today. Uh, Tim is most recently the translator of a selection of um, the, the notebooks from uh, Leopardi called Passions. And these selections were made by Leopardi himself over a lifetime, part of a larger work that bulks up to over some 4,000 pages called the Zibaldone. So maybe we could start, Tim, by you talking about what your relationship to the master text of uh, Zibaldone has been over your life and what drew you to, to this translation. Well, um, Lab Hardy is really one of the biggest discoveries for me as a, as an Englishman living in Italy for 30 years now. Um, I remember when I first started reading Lab Pardi, probably after being in Italy five or six years, there was just an immediate, immediate feeling of affinity with this man. Um, let, let's place him, we have, we have a man in the early 19th century um, brought up in a fairly remote part of the Papal States uh, near the Adriatic coast. Um, he was a boy who, who really spent his whole youth in a, in a huge library uh, made up of books that his father had, had bought rather cheap uh, when the various monasteries were, um, were closed down in the area. So most of the books were in foreign languages and poor young Leopardi, by, by about age age 12, already knew five or six languages. Um, and, and, and really, all his work is the work of a young man trying to come, come to terms with what life really is uh, in, in relation to what he's read in his books. I think that's what's so exciting about it, is he's always putting what he's read in relation to how life really is. And all the notebooks are full of a sort of dialogue between everything he's written, everything he's read, which is really far too much, uh, and instead what life is really like. Um, and, and that's what makes it really, really so exciting that you, you feel that although the mind is very bookish and, and full of all kinds of, of references, nevertheless, at the end, he always nails things down to, to what it's really like being alive. I think, I think that's what, what really always excites me about Leopardi. Mm. It's a really nice way of putting it. There, there, there's a real affection one feels in, in hearing the story and going to the text. And, um, and I also am very struck by the fact that this book was um, was written very much with with a, with, a, with a posthumous life in mind too. That later in life he went back and and indexed the entire thing and was able to sort of then put the various themes into into buckets. Our volume is one of them called called Passions. In the day and age, when you write a blog now for the New York Review, do you think that we still have this capacity, A, to live a life in books, B, to, to write incrementally like this, and finally, um, to build a sort of life writing project with uh, a, a sort of 
um, posthumous life in mind for it in this day of age of, of the internet and, and, and the information revolution. How would you, how do you read him today, I guess is the question. Well, it's a very different world. And in any event, Leopardi is, is almost a unique phenomenon. Um, th- this project was clearly not, not a project planned at the beginning. He had lots of other much more grandiose, he thought, publishing projects at the time. And these were notes jotted down, as it were, often against the, against the flow of his other work, as if to say, sort of, yes, but life is actually like this. Uh, and he starts making these um, diary entries, and then he begins to realize that he's creating as it were, a, a sort of philosophical work. Uh, and, and so he starts trying to schematize it and at the same time realizing that, that life is such that things can't be schematized. Uh, so so it's, it's an extraordinary project. I actually think, yes, people could do this today. Um, one of the reasons why he kept putting the work in buckets was because he wanted to figure out how to sell it. He was always desperate for money. Um, and he kept thinking, there must be something I can do with these 4,000 pages right. to turn them into money, but they have to be put into small sections and so on. But, but he never really, at the end of the day, managed to do it. It's fascinating. I can't tell you how many conversations I have with with writers and friends who are are trying to make a freelance life, and and the challenge is not that different actually uh, about how to bucket certain insights and, and and writing projects to be saleable. It's fascinating. And and to be saleable again <laughs> because he did actually obviously extract long passages from the Zibaldoni and change them and develop them, and and he sort of used the the diary is a workshop for other things he did. Uh, but when you turn to it in its original form, it does have the excitement of seeming to be written down right at the moment without any reworking or revision. Uh, and he had such a precise and, and rapid mind that, that it's really quite exciting. Unfortunately, at the time, there was really really no way he could, he could sell material like that. Today, um, Somebody might have given him a column somewhere, and and um, and the stuff would have had a different a different tone because it would have immediately had a public, and there would have been a, a back and forth. As it is, it, it, it's extremely. You feel very much that you've got an isolated person on their own trying to figure out life. Mm. Uh, it, it is exciting. Yeah, I, I feel that in the work as well. Um, exciting, rapid, but it's also incredibly nuanced with these sort of minute gradations of feeling. What was it like to translate a work that had those terms? Well, I, I, as a translation, it was a nightmare. <laughs> um, it, well, not a nightmare in the sense that I wasn't unhappy, but it, but it was a, extremely difficult. I, in, in the past, I... I translated Calvino and Calasso, um, Tabuki. I, I translated old texts like Machiavelli's The Prince. This was infinitely dif- more difficult than all of those, partly because because Leopardi often gets on sort of rolls on his own. He's not writing for publication. He has an Italian which is, is in a certain sense very personal and idiosyncratic, but at the same time highly articulated, there are often sections where it's extremely difficult to figure out what it means. 
for that, you know, fortunately I had the help of, of various people at the university who, when there's really something difficult, I can kind of get three or four different opinions. But really, the real problem is how to put this in an English prose that, that really makes sense for a reader today without losing the, all of the specialness of the original. I mean, I mean that, that is really the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It also occupies a, an interesting moment of time when it was written. You know, it codifies so much, as you said, of what he had been reading, everywhere from Goethe, Montaigne, Rousseau, on one hand, and yet it has a sort of a, a prediction or anticipation of other kinds of writers that would come later, uh, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, Gada, Beckett, Bernhard. Um, what would readers of these other authors who are perhaps better known like about Leopardi? Well, I think Leopardi's right at the center of a certain sort of negative tradition of thinking in 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 European literature, perhaps less represented in American literature. That whole line of thinking that says, you know, at the end of the day, the intellect, the enlightenment, actually hasn't made us any happier and hasn't made life any easier. Um, and and all of Leopardi's work is very much based on the idea that that the progress of the intellect and the mind has simply destroyed the sort of collective illusions, uh, religion, um, beliefs that that made a meaningful life possible. So so it's very much the work of, of a guy who's trying to come come to grips with what will life be like in the future when nobody believes everything but in order to go on with life you have to have some sense of meaning so how can you have a kind of double thing where you know life is meaningless but you pretend it's meaningful in order to work you know and i think anybody who's simply interested in this whole question of of how to give life sense when it when it appears to have none uh, they, they're just bound to find Leopardi interesting as one of the first people who really elaborates this problem. Hmm. Really interesting. When you uh, challenge yourself with a an author like Leopardi, as opposed to some of the more contemporary authors that you mentioned, Calasso and Calvino, um, what are the factors that are operating in your mind? Where do you situate yourself within the biography of the writer, within the historical timeline, with what comes after? How do you position okay. yourself? Well, this is an excellent question. One looks at this text and you think, well, should I be translating this in some sort of 19th century English? And, and then you think, well, well, no, that there was no English of the 19th century that one can easily put in relation to Leopardi. I, Italian as a national language was, was really hardly spoken uh, widely in Italy at the time. I think in, in 1860, when, when Italy became a nation, only 5% of the country actually spoke what was considered modern Italian. Uh, then Leopardi's Italian is, is at once archaic and idiosyncratic. Um, let, let me say this. Leopardi himself wrote a lot about translation. And one of the things he wrote about translation was that because translation lacked the spontaneity of original writing and was necessarily more cerebral because it had to pass through uh, a whole process of, of 
of intellectually understanding and then moving into another language. It was necessarily more distant, as it were, from life. And the only way he felt that that could be uh, could be got round, or at least to a certain extent, was with a, a really passionate engagement with the text, um, a real love of the text, and and then moving straight in, into the translation. And quite frankly, when, when one's gone through all the intellectual reflections about how one should translate this, I decided the only thing at the end to do at the end of the day is read it, hear it as clearly as possible, uh, and and then simply put it straight down. Um, not, not that there's not a process of revision, but that one simply becomes insecure if one, one starts to imagine one's sort of constructing a castle like this other castle, as it were. One has to actually engage in the project and feel an affinity for it to put this material on the page. Mm. It's interesting. I had a conversation recently with another translator that we publish who uh, sort of defied me to think of a major poet who didn't also translate and that translating was, was really kind of a, a, a master class of self-training to begin one's own writing. And it was a real pleasure for me to, to wit, be a witness to your, your process in translating this, and you're reviewing um, the complete translation done by multiple translators of the Zibaldone by Farrar Strauss, um, the way you, you attack this, this, this one selection done by uh, Leopardi himself. But when you think about the translation as a career, and what advice would you give to, to people starting out? Well, well, let me say first that it, it is fascinating that almost no major writers translate now. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the reasons is that, the, that our contemporary individualism is such that a writer translating is immediately seen to have some way said, I'm not a major figure because I'm doing a service to somebody else. So that if we see somebody, I don't know, if we see a Jonathan Franzen or somebody that translating, we say to ourselves, ah, he's not doing his own work, he's looking after somebody else. So, And it seems to diminish him. And lots of people, you know, who I've spoken to will give me the impression that that my work as a translation in some way diminishes one's claims to be an original writer. I know, it's, it's, it's a rather disturbing state of affairs, quite frankly. And for people setting out uh, to be translators, my, myself, I wonder if it's really good to think of it as a career um, or, or as a career without any other work, j- just as I, I feel the same about writing, quite frankly. I think it's, it's, it's a skill to mix in with other skills. Yeah. I, th- I think a good translator really has to have, have two completely antithetical qualities. One of them is, is an absolute meticulousness and faithfulness to a sense of what the original was and why we want to, why we want to translate it, why, what is the purpose of, of doing this. So not a slavish faithfulness, but a, but a passionate faithfulness to the original. But at the same time, an extraordinary creativity to to recreate and be faithful to the original in, in your own language. Um, actually, I think that's the problem, to have two sort of completely antithetical energies operating at the same time. Mm-hmm. So do you 
plan to continue to have this balance in your life to uh, <laughs> translate, uh, uh, write books, write nonfiction books, write novels, write blogs? And and if so, if there were to be you know one work uh, that you could have a go at, even if it's been translated before into English, what would that be? Well, I'm only going to translate now if things come up that I really, really want to translate. And in fact, that's why I took on this uh, this Leopardi project, because he's, a, he's someone who, who's always excited me, and it was a real challenge. And I was glad to go back to translating to do that. What, what would I like to translate if it was offered me? Well, uh, Elsa Morandi's book, um, L'Isola di Arturo, Arthur's Island, which which has been translated, but, but I feel rather poorly. Um, I would love to do that. And, and another text that I would love to, to translate or to have translated would be Spavos Coscienza di Zeno. I mean, I think these two novels are absolutely extraordinary novels at, at the level, of, certainly, of any Nobel. But I, I just don't think the versions in English that, that we have really do them justice. Mm. I don't say that as a as a kind of unpleasant criticism of the people who translated them, though, though they might see it that way. I, I, I think they are extraordinarily difficult books to to put into English, and, and it, I'd kind of love to have a go at those. Very, very interesting. This week is uh, premiering the film um, A 50-Year Argument, which is a, a, a sort of Martin Scorsese-directed documentary about the New York Review of Books, and you're a regular con- contributor to them. And actually, on screen, they flashed your um, review of the Zibaldone uh, that appeared la- last year. And I wondered how you feel about um, writing Blogs and 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 and, and criticism and, and how that informs the life project of, of of putting your intelligence in writing. Well, you know, I got into doing all these things not because I really planned to at the beginning, but because people asked me to, and I, you know, I needed the income. Um, I've learned to love writing the essays I write for the for the New York Review. Um, I hope I've developed a, a, a particular. Um, approach to writers. I, I'm very interested in, in in seeing not so much how the how the writing reflects the life, but how the writing actually is part of of the author's living. How it's part of a dynamic of communication between the author and the reader, and how meeting a writer on the page has uh, analogies with with meeting the writer in life. So I, I've tried to take take an approach to it that that I hope is particular to me, and I love doing it. I must say that writing blogs for the for the New York Review, where you get constant editing and come back, and you know none of those blogs go up without being rewritten a couple of times, mm. is actually you know a lot more work than writing straightforward articles for for a lot of newspapers. Um, so I'm I, you know I'm very pleased to work for them. It's just been a lot of fun, and I think. It brings out a sort of different kind of creativity. I think some of the, particularly some of the essays I do some in 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 the New York Review have a sort of narrative aspect to them, which which I hope kind of puts the novel writing and the essay writing together. And yeah, I've just been incredibly lucky to do all this stuff um, and to to survive doing this stuff, and and it's a great pleasure to do it. And obviously, 
the essays feed, feed into my fiction, and even the teaching work which I do in, in Milan, which is in translation, is all part of the same package. Hmm. I, I guess I've just been lucky doing all these things. Right. Do you keep a diary yourself? No, I. Sorry. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, I, th- I think between all the emails we write today and all the, you know, all the stuff here and there, there's just so much stuff being being written um, today. If anybody wanted to go and sort of look at one's life, there would there would just be far too much material. <laughs> so almost everything I write is is. It's quite crafted today, except emails to friends. Yeah, it's a it's a funny. We 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 talked about how contemporary uh, Leopardi feels, and at the same time, none of us are going to leave behind four thousand pages of diaries to index and and and, and put out. So it's a, it's a funny lesson uh, in, in 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 terms of how we document our self knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. I I do think though that he had a very special personal obsession with getting his mind round. I, get, I, I think he was one of those people who moved from a society that was in, entirely conservative and traditional. He was supposed to become a priest. His parents, that's the, the life his parents were bringing him up for. That was why he was in this monastic library every day. And then one day he suddenly realizes that it's all completely meaningless. Um, and, and and the diary, most of it's written in a very brief period of his life, just three or four years, when he writes more than 3,000 of those 4,000 pages. He's just desperately trying to get his mind around this. I think that that does make it really fascinating for the reader that, that often he will, he will fasten on tiny emotive responses to this or that and, and really open them up and say how much this tells us about about what it means to be alive. Hmm. Tim Parks talking to us from Italy today. Thank you for uh, speaking with us, and thank you for giving us a glimpse of, of um, Leopardi's talking about how it is to be alive. Thanks, John. Thank you very much.